You ever want to go into a field and just shout, God, if you are there, you must be out of your mind? Or more poignantly, God, what are you doing? If you're so good, why have you put me in this horrible situation? Now, for sure, there are some situations that can spark such attitudes, even amongst the most faithful believers out there. And given the people that God often chooses to use in his stories, that perspective almost seems to be the default starting place. Of course, God calls his people into some interesting situations. So it can be understandably frustrating, especially when it feels like the, the situation that we're in paints us into a corner. Like our only options are lousy and dreadful, to give the G-rated version of the adjectives we might come up with. If there really is a hidden option amongst this Jewish, like we started studying last week, is there any clue on how to find it? I mean, at least, you know, give us x-ray goggles or something like that, God. Something to level the playing field a little bit. Well, in today's story, it's, we definitely experience one of those are-you-nuts-God kinds of situations. If there was a hidden option for this faithful man, it was buried deep, 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 like down at the, the center of the earth. But it shows, as the story goes on, it shows just how awesome Gideon's God is. Let's check out the story from Genesis 7. It starts off like this. Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the troops that were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them, below the hill of Morah, in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The troops with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Israel would only take the credit away from me, saying, My own hand has delivered me. Now therefore proclaim this in the hearing of the troops. Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home. Thus Gideon sifted them out. Twenty-two thousand returned, and ten thousand remained. Then the Lord said to Gideon, The troops are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will sift them out for you there. When I say, This one shall go with you, he shall go with you. And when I say, This one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So he brought the troops down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, All those who lap the water with their tongues, as a dog laps, you shall put to one side. All those who kneel down to drink, putting their hands to their mouths, you shall put to the other side. The number of those that lapped was three hundred, but all the rest of the troops knelt down to drink water. Then the Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred that lapped, I will deliver you, and give the Midianites into your hand. Let all the others go to their homes." So he took the jars of the troops from their hands and their trumpets and sent all the rest of Israel back to their own tents, but retained the 300. The camp of Midian was below him in the valley. One of my favorite military books is a, is a book by uh, Stephen Pressfield called The Gates of Fire. Uh, if you've seen the movie 300, it's, they're both based off the same story of 300 Spartans versus a massive Persian army where Leonidas and his army was outnumbered like a thousand to one. It doesn't take a military science or a history de degree to guess how it's going to turn out. Not well for the Spartans. Well, that was bad enough, but God and Gideon in this story in Judges 7 start out at about four to one odds as far as troop numbers go. Certainly not great, but enough to leave one kind of scratching their heads like, God, four to one's bad enough. Why are you going to whittle things down to till it's like 450 to 1. 
I thought these were your people, God. You're sending them to slaughter. It sounds like the only options they have involve choosing where it is they want to get slaughtered, in their camp or in the Midian camp. Sometimes the hidden option requires seeing things from God's perspective. As I had said last week, the uh, engine for this series is a book called The Hidden Option by Jonathan Malm, who was a um, part of a, his family was missionaries in Guatemala. And he describes in one December in Guatemala City, uh, experiencing the burning of the devil festival. And he was told by other missionaries that were, had been around for a while to really steer clear of town when this happens. But it didn't happen. Now, if you can imagine basically a hundred free-for-all bonfires in town, plus fireworks on top of it, I mean, to the point of burning couches and tires and everything they could possibly set fire to, the visibility in the streets is down to zero. Couldn't even see your hand in front of you. They tried for hours to get out of town to where they could get up the mountain to back to their home, and eventually they finally made it there, and they could look out over the mountain and see the cloud hanging over Guatemala City. The cloud of the smoke from the fire in the festival. It's amazing how perspective can change a situation. You are often reminded what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5-7 when he says this, For we walk by faith, not by sight. Maybe there's a situation where you feel painted in a corner. Where it feels like you're walking in a fog, like where you can't even see your hand in front of you, let alone see where the path leads. You know what? Those are the times when we have no choice but to hang on to who God is. I may not know where the path leads, one might think, but I know the one who leads me down the path. God, from your perspective, what does this look like? What does this look like from the mountaintop, from 30,000 feet? You might even consider this perspective or this point of view as a way of seeking after God's wisdom, seeing things maybe in the way only God can see them. But the nice thing about wisdom is God's not stingy about it at all. James reminds us in James 1.5, if any of you is lacking in wisdom, ask God who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given you. Given the text that we have here, I'm guessing Gideon asked God, how? When, when the army's down to 300, how are you going to do this? How are you going to deliver them into our hands under these kinds of circumstances? And God offers Gideon an answer. As the story continues in verses 9 through 14, here we go. That same night, the Lord said to him, Get up, attack the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you fear to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Purah, and you shall hear what they say. And afterwards, your hand shall be strengthened to attack the camp. Then he went down with his servant Purah to the outposts of the armed men that were in the camp. The Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley as thick as locusts. And their camels were without number, countless as the sands on the seashore. When Gideon arrived, there was a man telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, I had a dream, and in it a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent. And struck it so that it fell. It turned upside down and the tent collapsed. And his comrade said, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, a man of Israel. Into his hand God has given Midian and all the army. Here's the thing. Though Gideon is God's man, 
he's afraid. And rightly so, each man in his army has to kill over 400 to have even a chance to win this victory. And God offered him, verse 10, if you're afraid, go to the camp. I get it if you're afraid. Here's something that will strengthen your hand. Go to the camp. And Gideon's like, done, boom. Can't get there fast enough. And he gets there and he hears this dream interpretation that he's going to win despite the limitations. So here's the thing. What if the obstacle became the opportunity? What if the limitations that we experience, maybe even if it is being in an army of 300 men against over 100,000, became the route to finding the hidden option? Here's an example, kind of out of my own life. I have been writing in some form or another for 30 years. You know what the scariest object is for a writer? A blank page. Write whatever you want is like creative kryptonite. Write a fiction story about castle times. Ah, all right, now we have some parameters. Now we can, that we can do. Write a haiku about a tree. We have some parameters. We have, God forbid, some limits we can do. So often we see limits, or more to the point, limitations as a bad thing. But what if they were the catalyst for our creativity? I heard one man, uh, a story of a guy who had a serious desire to minister to Muslims overseas. But that was a little bit of a problem. He had a family and a job that basically sat him behind a computer all day. Now it seems like two mutually exclusive scenarios. How is he going to rightly do both? Be a missionary overseas and yet take care of his family at a job where he's sitting behind a computer. The, he ended up getting hooked up with somebody who was kind of like a deep cover missionary in, uh, in the Middle East. And he discovered that the biggest struggle for the missionaries that are out there in the field on the front line, if you will, was getting new, new believers Bible study materials. But here was the thing. Since so much of that Bible study materials is digital, that states, uh, the stateside guy started basically loading and shipping flash drives while he's doing his day job. So he'd, he was a video editor or something like that, and he'd do some edits, and he'd load up a flash drive. And they'd go back and he'd render something else. He'd load up some more flash drives and he'd ship them out to the missionary to be able to resource them. And he may not have been the one on the front lines, but he's absolutely doing mission work as a, a resource, as a support personnel, if you will. You, maybe you've heard the story of David and Goliath. Now, conventional warfare in that kind of situation in 1 Samuel said that they should have fought one-on-one -on -one with swords hand-to-hand -hand combat. Here's the little limitation that David was a relative shrimp compared to Goliath. Just about anybody was a relative shrimp compared to Goliath. But the limit gave him creativity. So instead of trying to fight with the sword, instead of trying to don Saul's armor and fight conventionally, he pulled out a slingshot instead of a sword. And he dropped the giant. Boom! So let's see how limits start to invoke creativity for Gideon as the story continues in verses 15 to 22. 
When Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped, and he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Get up, for the Lord has given the army of Midian into your hand. After he divided the three hundred men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and emptied jars with torches inside the jars, he said to them, Look at me and do the same. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then you also blow the trumpets around the whole camp and shout, For the Lord and for Gideon! So Gideon and the hundred who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, when they had just set the watch, and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. So the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars, holding in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow, and they cried, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon! Every man stood in his place all around the camp, and all the men in camp ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the three hundred trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his fellow and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Bathsheba towards Zererah, as far as the border of Abel Maloah by Tabath. So a military convention says that Gideon's army should have been wiped out. Few, if any of them, perished in the creative routing of their enemy. The limit that God put on Gideon's army, getting them down to 300 men, massively outnumbered, revealed the hidden option. And the obstacle became the opportunity. So do you have a situation where you feel stuck? Like you need to find God's hidden option in your life. Try looking at your limits. I mean, consider this. We, as a worshiping community here at least, and, and companies all around, uh, all around the country, all around the world, faced huge limits since March. You want to worship? You want to build community? Great! Here's the limit. You can't have a building and you can't gather together. It's like the church's version of getting whittled down to 300 men versus 100,000. You run a restaurant, great, you can run a restaurant, but you can't have people in eating in. How are you going to get around it? For us, solving that issue created the chance to scale our outreach by a factor of 10. It may not have even happened otherwise, certainly not at the pace that it did. So where do you feel limited? Like you want to do something helpful, whether it's in your family, whether it's in ministry, in your community, whatever it looks like. But something makes that extra difficult. Now ask yourself, how can that obstacle become the opportunity to make a difference? Embrace that limit. Gideon did. Because like Gideon, your best solution may be hidden within that very limit. Let's pray together. Lord, it is a scary thing to pray, but thank you for limits. Thank you for creating us, maybe even with those idiosyncrasies that we don't like about ourselves, but that we can use because of your creativity. Help us to do that well. In doing that, may we get to experience real joy in you, the giver of all good things. Amen.